Uh, hey, I want you to take your left hand and right hand. I want you to look at it just for a second. Um, good news and bad news, light and dark. There are things that sort of go together, right? You take, you take uh, there we go, leave it on good news and bad news. You take your left and right hand, uh, put them together like this, right? Um, when you see that, re- recognize this, that, that good news and bad news just go, go hand in hand, right? Uh, let me take an informal poll for a second. Raise your hand if you prefer hearing good news before bad news. If I come to you and say, hey, I've got good news and bad news, which one do you want first? How many of you are good news first people? Raise your hand if you are good news first type people. Okay, so by definition, raise your hand then. Are, are you bad news first type people? Okay, really quick, why is that? Why do you want the bad news first? The majority in here, by the way, wanted bad news first. Why do you want the bad news first? Someone, someone help me out. Yeah. You don't want to end on a bad note. How many resonate with that? Is that part of, I mean, I see a lot of nods. Any other thoughts or reasons behind that? Yeah. So you can feel better after getting the bad news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Patty. Get it over with. Yeah, man, it's probably the same number of people who, when giving a speech, you're like, let me go early on. I just need to hurry up and get this over with and not dread it the whole time. Um, yeah, so, so good news and bad news. Uh, we just sang a line that I really enjoyed. It's, it said this, that, that there's, there's good news that's still worth repeating. Um, I want to say this morning, I have great news that is worth repeating, but it implies bad news you'd rather ignore. Okay, so great news worth repeating implies that there is bad news that you would rather ignore. To tell one without the other is to actually rob the news of its power. It does you no good. It comes off as simply more news, right? If we don't understand the bad, it comes off as simply news. Now, this news has to do with your future, which inherently means that it affects your present. You see, the way that you are experiencing present circumstances is totally informed by what you believe about the future. Let me give a little thought experiment. I read a a biography a couple years ago on Einstein, and he loved doing thought experiments. His thought experiments were pretty marvelous because of the brain that God gave this guy. But here's a thought experiment for you. Let's say that a boss hires two women of the same age of the same education level, the same skill level, even the same temperament. And he hires these two women and says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to take thing A and put it into slot B, and when you're done with that, hand it off to the next person. It's assembly line work. Over and over and over again for eight hours a day with the same number of breaks, same exact amount of time for lunch hour, they will be doing this. Now, to woman A... The boss tells her, if you do this for one year, at the end of the year, I will give you $30,000. She agrees and goes off to work. To woman B, he sits her down and says, if you do this, I will give you $30 million. She agrees and goes off to work. Okay? Fast forward in your mind two weeks. Two weeks into the job. The two women are side by side. They're working away. Remember, same temperament, same education level, same age. Woman A says, man, isn't this a tiring job? Aren't you frustrated? Aren't you bored with this job? And woman B stops her whistling for a moment. She goes, wait, what's that? She goes, no, 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 no. 
I'm thoroughly content with my job. What's going on here? What you believe about the future informs and controls the way that you are experiencing present circumstances. If you're getting paid $30 million for one year's worth of work, doing a super easy, even if it's menial, even if it's frustrating, even if it's kind of boring, you're good with that. What you believe about the future informs what's going on with your circumstances and how you are experiencing it. I'm just wrapping up an incredible book by Tim Keller. He's a pastor that ministers in Manhattan, New York. And it's called Making Sense of God. And he says this. He says uh, that we as human beings are irreducibly hope-based creatures. You and I are irreducibly hope-based creatures. Now spring is kind of the season of hope, isn't it? How many of you would say spring is your favorite season? Raise your hand. Let me see. Yeah, I think there's always some in the crowd that are like, yeah, that's my favorite season. Now, I'm not just talking about Easter. I'm talking about baseball, right? Um, There's new hope in the season of spring for everyone's favorite team. Or if you play on a team. Um, Opening day was a couple days ago for baseball. Not really a huge baseball guy. Um, But everyone's team is, is either tied for first place right now or right near first place. They're right in the mix of things. And fans of sports have this like insatiable ability to provide hope for their team, even when on paper there really shouldn't be any hope. Uh, A man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. He asked the boy in the dugout what the score was, and the boy responded, it's 18 to nothing. We're behind. Boy, the, the spectator said, I bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged? The little boy replied. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. Man, this boy was filled with hope, right? In fact, children, I would say, have almost a naive capacity for hope. You know what's really beautiful to observe is that Jesus doesn't correct this. Jesus actually commends this to the rest of us. Children have a naive capacity for hope, and Jesus says, man, become childlike in this. If I could capture what we celebrate on Easter with one word, it would be the word hope. Hope is common to everyone because we all need it. In fact, the good news for hope, whatever you think it might be to have great news about a future hope, implies bad news, doesn't it? It implies that there's brokenness, messiness, laziness, or maybe just plain losing 18 to 0. And we need this hope. Check out the stories that we tell one another that we pay good money to to watch and purchase. From comic books to TV shows to movies to any kinds of literature, we all long for a savior. We all recognize in the story of the life we're living that there's problems and brokenness and we need a savior. If we had it all together and we're totally in control, these stories wouldn't be appealing to us. We would just pass them by. We wouldn't need them. We wouldn't want them. Here's what's interesting. Those who are most aware of their need of hope are the closest to getting it. Jesus said this, I didn't come to call the healthy, but the sick. He also said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Christian or not, religious or not, every single person builds on some foundation. We all place our hope on something or someone. Here's my question for us this morning. Where does your hope rest? What foundation is your hope on right now? Maybe a follow-up would be this. Has it been exposed as lacking or been found as credible over this last challenging year? In other words, what has worldwide pandemic, what has challenge and difficulty brought to what you're building your hope on? The Christian gospel, which is really just another way of saying great news, the Christian great news hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the central theme in the Bible. You remove this one linchpin of the resurrection from the Bible story, and everything falls apart. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote this, and if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. To put it in Easter terms, you could say this, Christians have all of their eggs in this basket, that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, really. But it's really hard to believe this. It's really hard to believe it. The biblical witness on the resurrection of Jesus is unflinching. This is not metaphor. This is not myth. This is actual history. The historical evidence outside the the Bible is profound. That Jesus really did live and cause quite a stir in first century Palestine is undisputed amongst the most proponent Uh, proponents of Christianity and the opponents of Christianity. That Jesus really did die at the hands of Roman executioners, again, undisputed. And that there was an empty tomb with no corpse ever to be found is agreed upon by all, even again, those who are the most staunchly against Christianity. That is not the point at which they attack Christianity. There is just profound, overwhelming evidence, and time has not diminished it, but strengthened it. But even with all of this, isn't the resurrection of Jesus hard to believe? Now, the original followers had doubts as well. Look at just a sampling of these. Mark chapter 16. After these things, he appeared to another, um, two of them, as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. In Luke 24, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. In John 20, now Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. These are the first disciples of Jesus. These are the ones who saw him bodily walk around and watched him die. Now Thomas gets the, the, the title of doubter, doubting Thomas. That's where we get that from. And maybe he was the most emphatic of all the followers, but what we see is that, is that the early believers were not initially believers. They would have been called early doubters, early deniers, early skeptics. Why? 
Well, I did some special research in the Greek and Aramaic, the original languages of the Bible, and here's what I've concluded. It's because of this. It's because dead people don't rise from the dead. That's why. You actually don't need biblical study for that. You just use your brain. And you say, if I'm told someone was dead and now is alive again and walking around, I'm skeptical of that because all my experience says something to the difference. The first disciples had put their hope in a Jewish rabbi, but that hope turned into confusion, which eventually degraded into despair as they watched these events unfold before their very eyes. And now all of a sudden, they are being told to hope again. In the same Jesus that had just sort of uh, disintegrated before their eyes. What is their stance? Their stance is caution, hesitancy, and suspicion. Maybe that's where you are today. I want to show you that God has left witnesses to the truth. God has left witnesses to the truth for us. They're found in the cosmos, everything that we see and can't see that's created. They're found in the person of Jesus. They're found in the biblical witness. The Bible is God's book where he goes on record to tell the world how the world works and what he is up to. Now, these little clues that God has left for us, I want you to think of them for a moment like Easter eggs. Take a look, if you're here in person, take a look at that picture for a moment. Easter eggs are super obvious once you know where they are, right? They're really obvious once you are told where they are, but not a moment before are they obvious. Now, there's an obvious Easter egg here in this picture that I know exactly where it is because I put it there but you probably don't know where it is. You ready for it? Take a close look at the screen. Bam, there it is. There it is sitting there for you. Okay, now look carefully again at, at your own picture that you're holding or the one on the screen. Now that you know where that egg is, take a look again. You can see it. It's the, the opacity has been, been drawn way back, but it's hidden in there. And once you know where to look and that it's actually there, you go, oh yeah, there's an egg sitting there. I see it very plainly. In fact, once you see it, you cannot unsee where it is. We're at a point in our family where it's no longer just the parents who hide the Easter eggs. We have older siblings that are going around and and hiding the Easter eggs, and it's really, really fun. We always reserve a couple of like super duper eggs that look like they've been laid by Big Bird. They're the, the really big ones. And these are like one or two that are like really profoundly larger and clearly there's something much better inside. What happens with our family is we say go and we usually let the little ones out first and we sort of scale it from there and there's some that are easier to find and some that are harder to find and and we use the whole front and backyard and side yard and vehicles and everything. We have to give parameters or else our kids would just keep going. And so as they're looking around and, and hunting for these eggs, usually it starts off with all kinds of excitement and energy because there's easy eggs to find, right? But what happens the longer you go on an Easter egg hunt? The easy ones are picked up and found, and what's left is the harder ones to find. And so what happens is, eventually, without fail, without us telling them that they can do this, my children come to me and the older siblings, and what do they want? They want a hint. They want to know where these eggs are. Where are they? 
Now, do I just outright take them by the hand, walk over, and lift the bush and show them where it is? Yes or no? No. Why? Because that's terrible. That's boring. What I do is I provide hints for them. So we do this. Uh, you're, you're in the wrong yard. You're in the backyard. The one, the one, the one I'm thinking of is in the, in the front yard. Uh, or we do quadrants of it. Or we do hotter or colder, right? Kids love that. Like, oh, no, you're, you're in the wrong. Oh, yeah, you're getting hot. So all of that comes on. What's fun now with the older kids is we begin to give clues. And there's, there's big conferences between the parents and the kids going, is this a good clue? Is this going to give it away too easily? How long do we draw this out? And as time passes and the big bird eggs have not been found, you know what happens? The urgency begins to rise. And they know there's still an egg out there. They ask and keep on asking because they are convinced that looking for it will be worth it. Even when everything in them says there can't possibly be any more eggs, I have checked everywhere. They look at my face, they look at my wife's face, they look at the older siblings and they know, nope, there's still more out there. Why do they keep looking? Because they trust us as good. They trust that we're not pulling a prank on them, and we just enjoy them searching around for no reason. And so you know what they do? They keep on asking, seeking, and knocking our input, our advice, our hints. They keep coming to us, pleading with us, where is it? Sometimes we give hints, sometimes we don't. Do you see a little picture of the invitation Jesus invites us into as followers of God? Let's look at this for a second. We keep on at it, even when we don't see the prize. Why? Because we trust the word of the Father on the matter. We trust that we will keep going. It's an act of faith. We've looked everywhere, we think, and yet we press on. We also keep at it when it's hard because we know that it will be worth it. We believe about the future. We trust that it will be worth it. Any pain and toil of hunting for this egg right now is going to be worth it. In our family, for whatever reason, games often eventually draw blood, and we've had blood drawn on, on Easter egg things as people are hanging off limbs and trying to find things. We usually never visit the hospital on Easter, but, but there's been intense searching effort that has gone, uh, gone on in our yard. Finally, we regularly need revelation from outside of ourselves and the reassurance from someone outside of ourselves to say, keep going. It's there. What I've described is Bible reading and prayer. We keep asking, seeking, and knocking. God, where is this? Sometimes he relents and gives us what we think is a great clue, and it launches us forward in life. At other times, it seems to fall on deaf ears. Some of you might be looking, especially younger people, might be looking on this screen or at your bulletin this morning and go, what is that image behind the words? That's called a typewriter. So a typewriter, think record player for music, a typewriter is that for words, okay? Before you magically pushed a key and it went to a cloud somewhere, a little thing went and it like nailed it into the paper, right? It's, it's actually old school and they're actually kind of coming back. I put up a typewriter because of this. God uses the written word as the star witness for his truth in history across the centuries. Isn't it true that Easter eggs aren't just for kids? 
Product developers, programmers, and producers love to hide Easter eggs for the super fan to discover, right? You guys know this. Pixar is really famous for this. Um, Pixar is famous for it, but they're not the originators of it. All, all glory is imitated glory from somewhere else. There are Easter eggs embedded in the scripture. In fact, we would call it Bible prophecy. That's just one picture of it. The story of Easter has Easter eggs in it. And the story of your own life has Easter eggs for it. Rob, I love that. I was at, at Rob's um, dad's memorial service. I was there when he sang that. It was a powerful moment of worship for me as I thought about my own dad who died on a Sunday and lived on a Sunday. And as we celebrate Easter Sunday, every Sunday, I think, man, JS is alive and well. He's better than he's ever been. My dad is alive and well. He's better than he's ever been. Why? Because the hope that we have as Christians isn't touched by the grave. So that's a little Easter egg left in Rob's pocket from last August, embedded into the story of his life. There's a great little thing if you just YouTube, I, this is really risky with our service being on YouTube because it's a click away. Stay with us or don't, it's your choice, I'll never know. But if you, if you search Pixar Easter eggs, there's a great little four and a half minute um, clip that just shows all these Easter eggs embedded into the Pixar films, and they all sort of cross-reference one another. Little posters on a wall of a child, and, and they're just there if you were to freeze frame it at just the right second. You would never see these unless someone else is helping point them out to you. Well, unless you're a super fan. Um, so if you go and watch this little clip, super fun if you're a Pixar fan, remember that just as those are put there on purpose... That embedded in the scriptures, embedded in the cosmos, embedded in your own story are little things put there on purpose by the author, by the producer of history. And they're there in Pixar sort of just to delight us. And I would say many of the things in scripture and the cosmos are there simply to delight us. But there are other things that are crystal clear clues to what God's doing and what he's up to in history. You probably know much of the Easter story. In fact, I would say if you're here at church on a, on a 9 a.m. sermon, you, you probably could get up here and kind of walk us through. But let me just say for the sake of everyone who might be listening, um, that maybe it's sort of like a, like a potluck of, of ideas and thoughts. There's mocking Roman sh- soldiers. Uh, there's a long table set with bread and wine. You know that ties in. There's a, there's a bloody Savior. There's sleeping uh, disciples. There's scattering disciples. There's a garden. There's Gethsemane. There's three crosses. There's some sort of a heroic sacrifice built into all this. Maybe some of you do a deep dive. You know there's a, a veil that's torn from top to bottom in a temple. And certainly you know the aspect of a rolled away stone and an empty tomb. Today, instead of showing you the Easter eggs embedded in that, instead of showing you an Easter egg, what I want to do is I want to show you from one account sort of the key to going back in time and going forward in time to discovering what God has embedded in the cosmos and in the Bible for us. In Luke 24, starting in verse 13, this is that very first Easter That very first Easter, this happened. There are two hopeless followers of Jesus. They are leaving the scene of the crime against Jesus. You know what's on their mind? Bad news and confusion. 
That's what they're mulling over. That's what they're thinking about. That's how they're experiencing their present circumstances. And in Luke 24, 14, I know we've done a Passover Luke. And the reason we're back in it is because we're Easter Sunday. We're going to be back in the Gospels. Verse, 20, uh, verse 14 of chapter four, uh, 24 says this. Luke 24, 14. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, love this answer, what things? Now, again, imagine this. They're wandering back from Jerusalem, probably to their home in Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile journey. Two friends walking along, discussing. Again, hope in a Jewish rabbi, turned to confusion. It's now in utter despair. Jesus comes and joins them in the journey as they're discussing And when he asked, hey, what are you talking about? They stopped short. And after they picked their jaws up off the ground, um, he says, man, these things, you're the only one who doesn't know. And he says, what things? What I love about Jesus' response is this. He is inviting more conversation. He's inviting relationship. By asking what things, he is initiating these two venturing even deeper into their inner landscape of what's going on with them. He actually sort of uh, helps them begin to articulate. With one question, they begin to articulate what their hope was built on and how it's been crumbling over these last several days. Verse 19 And they responded to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to this. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. What we're hearing is the gospel according to Cleopas. He nails it. He gives this summary of Jesus. He has this buildup as to why his hope was in Jesus, that he was mighty in power and and word and deed, that he died, that the hope of redemption died with him, that he conquered the grave, and there's witnesses backing up, and yet there's disappointment and dashed hope. Four words kind of uh, clue us in in verse 21. It opens up this world of need that Cleopas had, but we had hoped. But we had hoped. Church, have you ever had your hopes dashed? Not just a little bit, but a lot. Maybe you've had your hopes dashed in one fail swoop, one weekend, one moment in time, a couple of words spoken over a phone line. 
I've had many conversations with people who have absolutely lost hope. Parents who have teens that are sullen and angry and distant, and they've lost all hope. Teens who are angry and depressed and already wondering, is there anything left to hope in? I've searched everywhere. I'm not all that convinced that I should keep searching. Spouses who wonder where it all went wrong. Singles, young and old, that are living with unfulfilled longings and hopes. Well, it's Jesus' turn to speak, and he speaks right into the dashed hopes of these two. Do you know that Jesus is great at joining us on the journey? Jesus is great as a listener. Jesus is a really, really good listener. In fact, part of what he does as he listens, he doesn't just listen passively, he listens actively, and then he asks the right question. Jesus is great at asking open-ended questions that lead to growth and discovery. What things is what he replies. And Jesus is also great at speaking truth into doubt and confusion. He lives out this bold claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Not just that he points out the way, the truth, and the life. Look look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them the Easter eggs. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You can say that he connects the dots. And as he connects the dots, he is letting them pull back and see the picture that's been there all along. Jesus gives them the key to discovering Easter eggs that have been there all along and even moving forward, how to figure them out moving forward. Just like other Easter eggs, they've been overlooked and passed by. They're right there in plain sight. But until you're shown that they're there, you walk right by them, oblivious to them. Friends, our Old Testament is the Bible Jesus read. That's the Bible he interpreted about things to himself. And he's saying the prophets really did have it right. That this apparent defeat is actually a glorious victory. What Jesus is demonstrating here is something called revelation. They couldn't see it for themselves, but were shown it by someone else. My kids this afternoon will not know where some of the eggs are. They will need revelation from myself. What's really incredible to see is this. Their lives are changed like that in an instant. And it's so obvious. It's obvious because their actions look exactly like someone who was just demonstrated a future hope that they said, oh, I get it. I believe in that. Our bodies, our actions, our external face and and the words we speak and don't speak will reflect our heart. It will reflect what's going on internally. Look at what they did. Verse 32. 
They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them by the breaking of the bread. Church, hope changes us. No longer were they defeated or hopeless. Sorrow has been turned into joy. These two repented in the most literal sense. Repent simply means to change your mind. We are walking towards Emmaus. Jesus really did rise. We need to tell the brothers back in Jerusalem. They repented. Their life altered course because of the news that they had received. And they go and do exactly what disciples of Jesus have always done. They testify it, brimming with joy to other people. They discovered what Jesus gave them was a tool. He points back to the written word, saying, it's been there all along. Look, it's obvious. Let me show it to you. And with the tool of Scripture, the written testimony of the Bible, he points out it all points to him. Let me wrap up with this. You might be wondering, great, what does all of this have to do with me? We get that those first disciples have all that. What does it all have to do with me? The great news of Jesus is not only that hope exists, it's not only that it was rooted in centuries of history, that's verifiable from outside sources, but that it's available to us. Jesus isn't a force. Jesus isn't a concept. Jesus isn't a philosophy. Jesus is a person. He appeared to his friends. He ate with them. He spoke with them. He took doubting Thomas and said, here, give me your hand. Let's, let, flesh and bones. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, bones, Thomas. He was patient with them. You channel a force, you discuss a concept, you subscribe to a philosophy, but to a person, you relate. This is the hope, a relationship with the risen Jesus. Friends, the Bible remains sufficient to lead us to the truth, to quiet our doubts, to have our hearts burn within us, just like those first disciples. Romans 15, 4 says this, but whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, listen to this, we might have hope. What's written before It's not only for our instruction, just that we would know a philosophy, know some truth, know some things, but it's written for our encouragement. Literally, we have courage poured into us by what was written in the past. And the more you discover, the more you say, no way is this chance. God, you have been working through history, through the cosmos, through the person of Jesus Christ, and you're working today that we might have hope. I'm not sure what you think of Christians or Christianity, but let me offer you a very brief, rapid summary to kind of give you a picture of of what Christians believe. 
Christians believe that all people are in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. We might call it hang-ups. We might call it growth points, baggage, junk, stuff. The Bible calls it sin. And that we're all born with it, and we're all really excellent at producing it over and over and over again. In fact, we can't help but miss the mark. Christians live aware of this bad news, and Christians refuse to ignore it, even though it's nagging, even though it's unpleasant, even though we don't want to talk about it. We also believe that every person has the same need. Because of this sin, uh, we all have the same basic need, grace. Grace, quite simply, is not getting what we do deserve because of our sin and getting what we don't deserve. A Christian never, ever gets over this reality. The reason it really is a Good Friday, when we're talking about a bloody Savior being murdered on a Roman cross, the reason that's good is because every drop of blood, every mocking word, is a picture that Jesus is enduring something in exchange for us. Someone always pays for sin in a just system. Jesus takes the punishment, and the exchange is that we get the reward. We get it credited to our account. We also believe that we all have the same Savior. It's found in a relationship with Jesus, not a church, not a belief system, not a nebulous higher power, or some kind of morality that we would do on our own. None of those take away the stench of sin. None of those take away the shame of sin. None of those empower us to live out of a changed heart. Every one of those other things, all they do is become more oppressive over time. Peter boldly preaching to the very ones who had just crucified Jesus in a sermon said this, there is salvation in no one else. For is there, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. Go back and read the clues. All of the Easter eggs can only point to one person. Jesus is the only one in world history that fits the bill. We also believe that we have the same result. Because of the empty tomb, because of the relationship with Jesus, we are saved from sin. We are also saved from death. And we are saved from wrath and hell. What we see on the cross, by the way, is a preview of hell. Both Old Testament and New Testament repeatedly mention judgment on sin. Again, this is required because God is not only loving, God is just. Without being just, He would not be loving. That a loving God would send someone to hell really trips some people up. You know what I marvel at? I marvel at how people who constantly mess up in word and deed by things they commit and things they omit... How on earth could anyone that wicked ever be let into relationship and kingdom with a perfect, holy, just, all-knowing God? That's what trips me up. Well, friends, that's called grace. Grace is the only way in. So there it is. That's the great news worth 
repeating. And the bad news that many people want to just ignore altogether. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. That's a pretty succinct summary of the gospel. Do you want to hear one even shorter if that one trips you up? You're like, I don't know if I can remember that one. Remember two words spoken by a convict next to Jesus. What were they? Remember me. Remember me. Do you know that both criminals were hurling insults at Jesus earlier in the day? The Gospels tell us that very, very plainly. There was a change of heart. There was a change of mind. There was repentance on the part of one. He begins to stand up for Jesus. All he can muster is the very non-churchy words of remember me. And you know what Jesus did? He did. He did remember him. And that man, according to biblical witness, was saved from a life of sin into a life of eternal bliss with Jesus. Friends, that is the great news that we're about to sing about right now. Ben, come on up and lead us. As they do, let me just close in prayer. God, for some hearing this, for some present, this might be uh, just quite simply a comeback message, a reminder. God, like sheep, we wander, like prodigals, we run and try to find happiness and find hope and meaning elsewhere. God, to the prodigal, I pray that your wooing spirit would just say, come back. There's a place in the Father's kingdom. He looks for you down the road with open arms. God, for others, maybe this morning is a siren, an alarm clock. God, sinners who have been uh, just contentedly and pridefully thinking they have no need of this God stuff. But when looking at the hope of their foundation, when looking at the logic of us just being a collection of gases and molecules and realizing that would mean that a whole host of things are untrue, like love and beauty and eternal truth and us mattering beyond death. God, maybe this morning is just a wake-up call. God, for many people this morning, Christians around the world, this morning is just a relief. We receive it afresh this morning. A reminder that says, that's right, we don't earn our salvation. Grace is never earned. It can also never be taken away or lost. God, it's your kindness that leads to repentance, not just the first time, but over and over and over again. God, thank you for meeting us where we're at. Thank you for drawing us into deeper waters of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.